Would you take your Bibles? And let's turn to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter number 8. Genesis chapter number 8. It's been a few weeks since we were here in Genesis, our study, last. Last time we studied here, we were in chapter 8, and really the story of the great flood that reminded us of the fact that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Just two main thoughts in that sermon you likely remember. We said that God remembered and Noah worshipped. In short, we noted the fact that the language of the text was actually covenant language because we said when we hear the word remembered, we tend to think that the alternative is to forget as if somehow God forgot and then he remembered. But we said that's not the case with God at all. Instead, the scriptures are clear that this language has to do with choosing to think about something and to keep the promise that you've made. And that's what we find throughout the Scriptures. In fact, as we, as we studied this and we saw the beauty of this reminder, we saw hope-filled, life-giving truth flow to us from it all. We considered at the end of our sermon last time in Genesis the language of the New City Catechism, the first question of that catechism, which says this, what is our only hope in life and in death? The Catechism answers the question this way, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. After considering all that this truth entails for us, we close that sermon by noting the fact that the first thing Noah did when he exited the ark, when the flood had finally subsided, was to build an altar and to worship God. We saw that in verse 20 of our text, which ended the passage this way, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I told you, if I could have my druthers, if I could do what I would prefer, I'd change all of the the, the smiling animal pictures on the ark with the, the rainbow over top to a picture of Noah and his family kneeling around an altar on the other side of the flood. They worshipped the God who had graced them. This morning, I want to take up the text at that very verse. I want to start our reading at verse 20. I want to read down into chapter 9 as well. So so the text for this morning is chapter 8, verse 20, down through chapter 9, verse 17. I want to read the whole thing so we can see the flow of what's here. Let me begin at verse 20 where we read this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, that every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and and all flesh that is on the earth. You know, friends, we started where we ended last time, and I think it should not be surprising to us to find the language of worship and of covenant on this side of the flood. You stop and think about it for a moment, the idea that Noah would exit the ark and immediately bow in humble reverence and thanksgiving is not odd or should not strike us as so. The thought that he would lead his family to worship God rather than to immediately forage for food or seek out fresh water or gather together all the things we think of as necessities for life that he worshipped first should not seem strange. But I think it often does. The idea that people who were at that moment now being set in a, in a position of survival, in fact, God is instructing them on what to eat next, right? That their first inclination was not, get the food! Their first thought was, bow the knee. Worship the Creator. And yet so often it seems that the only thought in many of our heads is one of, i got to survive. i got to live. i got, I, I got, I got to make it. No, friends, we've seen it before and we will continue to see it. We were made for worship. We were made for worship. You see, rather than being surprising to us, I believe that this should be instructive to us. You see, there's something far, far bigger going on in all of this than just that which affected Noah and his family immediately and directly. 
Commentator Marcus Dodds wrote these striking words about the flood and and the lessons that uh, I think are for us there by implication at least. He wrote this in his commentary. He said, this event, speaking of the flood, this event then gives us some measure by which we can know how much God will do to maintain holiness upon earth. In this catastrophe, everyone who strives after godliness may find encouragement seeing in it the divine earnestness of God for good and against evil. There's only one other event in history that so conspicuously shows that holiness among men is the object for which God will sacrifice everything else. It's clear to those who know their Bibles that Dodds was pointing us to the cross as the only other event so conspicuous about the earnestness of God for holiness as the flood. And Dodds was arguing that the flood and the ark actually in their own God-given way point us as well to the cross. Isaiah pointed forward to the divine earnestness of God demonstrated in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know these familiar words, but listen again to them and how conspicuous the earnestness of God was in what He did at the cross. Surely He, referring to Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Friends, all of this foreshadowing from the flood and these realities we're considering is quite intentional in Scripture. This is God's design. Just stop and think about it for a moment. Our God in His infinite, infinitely sovereign and gracious wisdom chose to point us through His Word again and again and again to the beauty and to the majesty and to the power and the glory of the suffering, saving Christ. Over and over again, the Scriptures in unmistakably plain statements and in more obscure and and, and, and types and shadows, we call them, makes much of our Lord, our Lord, and our never-ending need of Him. From the start to the finish, the Scriptures are pointing us to Him. There's a reason Jesus would walk with His disciples on the road to Emmaus right after His resurrection and say to them, and the text tells us, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He showed them the things concerning Himself. We mustn't miss Him. 
Today what we do is we take up another section of this text this, that, that, that really reminds us of the promise-making, promise-keeping, gospel-declaring, sinner-saving nature of our God. This is what's highlighted in these verses that we're studying. There are four big ideas, and I'll just say from the beginning, we don't have time to tackle any of them in, 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 in great detail. Four ideas. I want to kind of do a flyover of the text this morning. And I want you to see these things. I want you to see these four ideas found in the text. The first thing I want you to see is a striking contrast. Secondly, we'll see a repeated command. Thirdly, we'll see a sobering corrective. And finally, we'll see a reminder of the covenant. All of that is here in the section that we're studying. Now, what I want to do is this morning give you a flyover of the text. And I want to come back, Lord willing, even next week, and in particular one of these areas, I want to come back and preach a whole sermon on just a couple of verses found in here. And we may do that in a couple of sections. I'm still determining how, how, how deep we'll dig. But there's a lot of truth here. and I want to make sure we don't miss it. So understanding what we're going to do, what we want to do, let's just dive right in and, and look at the first of these four big ideas. Let's consider a striking contrast, okay? A striking contrast in the text. Friends, in light of God's former intent and, <clears throat> and purpose to destroy all the inhabitants of the earth, we know that was what came previous. Our passage for this morning stands really in stark contrast to what came before it. And what we're reading now versus what we saw, the language intended to strike us as a, as a contrast. Just watch how this works at least in a couple of places in the text. The first thing I want you to consider is the contrast between what rose up in God's heart before the flood in verse, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. So if you've got your Bibles, let's look at chapter 6. Verse 5, what did it say there? The Lord saw that the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man and it grieved him to his heart. He sees the wickedness rampant in the earth and it rises up before him and it goes straight to his heart and it grieves him. And don't miss the way that we might even say that the wickedness of man rose up like a stench in his nostrils and broke his heart. But I want you to notice what we read this morning in our text in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And what happened to this? When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he responded to it. What a remarkable contrast between what he's just been seeing rising from the earth before the flood and the first thing that rises from the earth after the flood. There's a completely different response in the heart of God to the first and the second. There's also a contrast in the language we read back in chapter 6 just prior to the flood. Look again at chapter 6. We'll just kind of jump through a few verses beginning at verse 7. What do we read? So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And God saw the earth, verse 12, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, what I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, he repeats it. Behold, I will bring a flood 
on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. There's no question what God's determination was prior to the flood. I'm going to kill them all but Noah's family. But what do we read in our text for this morning? Again, verses 21 and 22, what do we see there? When God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Prior to the flood, God sees the evil and He determines I will destroy it. After the flood, God still knows the evil in man. The attention of his heart is evil from his youth. But I will never again do what I have done with the flood of waters upon the earth. See, friends, it seems apparent if you just read the text, you you watch the flow and the repetition of language and the contrast of language, that we are intended to read the language of this passage as a striking contrast between what has just come before it. It's to almost breathe into us the ability to sigh with the grace and the mercy of God Let's be clear, this contrast is designed, it's intended to highlight the amazing mercy of God, the the grace of God, the kindness of God toward His own. And Clearly, Genesis is teaching that we each have an inescapable responsibility or duty to submit to, to honor, and to worship the Creator and the Sovereign of all as our own Sovereign Lord, our own personal Savior. Over the years as I've ministered, I have seen many times the response of people both in and out of churches will say things like this, well, I believe in God. There is a God out there somewhere. There's a higher power of some sort. How many people refer to, you know, the man upstairs with a shrug and a chuckle And a continuing right on with the wickedness of life. No personal responsibility. No no personal accountability. No personal submission. No personal belief that this affects me at all. No, the text is making plain that we each have an inescapable duty to submit to Him ourselves. In fact, friends, the Apostle Paul takes the, the language of, of sacrifice, takes up this language of sacrifice we see in the example of, of Noah who, who, who slaughtered animals right there after the, the, the ark and he offered up this pleasing aroma to God. Paul takes up that language of sacrifice and he applies it directly to those who would respond rightly to the mercy of God today. And you know these verses. Romans chapter 12 
Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, on the basis of the mercy of God. What is your responsibility to go, whew, glad that's over with, don't have anything to worry about now, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My friends, I don't want to downplay at all what we do in this room when we gather for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And then we move across and we spend about another hour together in the second hour. And then we come back together on a midweek and maybe for another Bible study and we gather with the Word and we, we honor our God, we worship our God together. I don't want to downplay that at all. But if you think that you have worshipped acceptably because you showed up for an hour and now get to live however you want when you leave, we have completely missed what worship is. Do we understand that the right response of one who understands the mercies of God is is not like he gets an hour of my week? And even that I give grudgingly because I could really use that hour for better things, right? Like how much of that spirit creeps into our hearts? Almost like he pries a couple hours out of our, 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 our lives like, like he has to pry our fingers back from them because we want our time no he said your life my life is to be worship it shouldn't be hard for him to convince us to walk in ways of godliness to give ourselves away. In fact, it's interesting, the old King James just says, this is reasonable. This isn't like some kind of hyper requirement. Like This is just reasonable. In light of His mercy, we give all of us to Him. Our body, our mind, our soul, our thoughts, our plans, our dreams, our hopes, our futures. This is our spiritual worship. He gets all of me. You wonder if your life is being offered in spiritual worship, just read the next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. See, see, we spend so much time testing to discern what is my will, what is my plan, what is pleasing and acceptable to me. How much time do we spend thinking and planning and wrestling and writing lists to determine what will please us? What about thought for what actually pleases God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? 
Friends, when we hear the language of worship, if we're not careful, we relegate it to an hour or two or three if we get around to that. But hear me, this hour is to launch us out into a life of worship. And we have to ask ourselves a question. Is that what we believe? The writer of Hebrews utilizes similar, similar language when he says it this way in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, to give your life away for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I wonder, is what we call worship and what God calls worship agreed? This is why I say, friends, that we should not think of worship as if someone stopping the first thing they do before worrying about whether or not their stuff is still in the grocery store or they can forage for something off the ark is to get on their knees and worship God shouldn't feel odd to us. That shouldn't seem strange to us that worship comes before pleasure. That worship comes before comfort. That worship comes before security. And hear me, I'm not just talking about an hour on Sunday morning. talking about a mindset and a life that has given myself to him because that is reasonable in light of the mercies that he has given me as the new testament contrasts god's heart and his commitment toward both the lost and the and the saved i mean you think about the language of our text it's contrasting what he said he would do to the lost and what he would now do for his people and for the future and i think about that even in the new testament in a single verse we find that same kind of clarity and contrast what do we read in romans 6 and 23 for the wages of sin is death but free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. These contrasts we're seeing in Genesis are not like one-offs. They're not odd. No, this is, this is how God portrays all of this to us. And I want to ask, do we see it and do we walk in it? We could camp out here for the rest of the morning. We don't have time. This is a striking contrast we see in our text but the second thing i want you to see this morning is this i want you to see a repeated command a repeated command take careful note of what we read next verses one through four look at the language again and god blessed noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered every moving thing that is uh, that that lives shall be food for you and as i gave you the green plants i give you everything but you shall not eat the flesh with its life that is its blood if you were with us in the early parts of the Genesis study, you will likely remember, I hope you will, that, that, that some of these words should be recognizable. We've seen some of these words before. In fact, some of these are direct uh, reiteration of some things that God said to Adam and to Eve back in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember this? Genesis 1, verses 26 and following. 
God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that that moves on the earth and God said behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit you shall have them for food now follow the logic for just a minute we wrestled through this back when we looked at that text in Genesis 1. But first, when God said that He intended to, uh, what He intended to do in creating man, He stated the functional, uh, the functional purpose of dominion He was giving them. And then we said once He had created man in His image, He, he stated that same functional purpose of dominion in the form of a command to the man and the woman. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it. And this is referred to among scholars as either the creation mandate or the dominion mandate or both together, right? We've got these, this language we know, creation mandate, d- dominion mandate. It's got profound implications for how we approach our lives in this world that God's given to us. Simply put, we said it this way, that the Creator put mankind on this planet as representatives of His authority on earth. Now, there are practical implications of this dominion mandate. And after all that God commanded the man and the woman, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We've talked about this before. They were to have children. They were to have many children. They were to spread out across the earth. They were to have authoritative, uh, an authoritative role in the, in the created order. All of this is wrapped up in the language that's here. It should also be addressed that they were permitted by God to eat. God said... You shall have the plants for food in Genesis 1. But I want you to notice the way that God repeated and then expanded this command after the flood. Because in our text it said this, 1 through 4, it said this, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he said at the end of verse 2, Into your hands they, speaking of all the animals, are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. He said before, the trees and the fruits will be food for you. The plants will be food for you. Now he says, everything that moves will be food for you. Amen. Amen. Yes, to the meat eaters. Absolutely. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. He said, the last time I gave you plants, I'm now giving you animals as well. And he repeats it in verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. See, just like God had commanded Adam and Eve, he now commanded Noah and his family with the same instructions. This time, he goes further. He had given Adam and Eve plants, now he gives them all of the animals as well. But notice there's a restriction, just one. And he said this, he told them that they were not to leave the blood in the meat when they ate it. Don't eat the blood. In fact, elsewhere he tells them, drain it, pour it out, and cover it with dirt. Use it as a sacrifice or dispose of it, but don't consume it. It's going to prove incredibly significant later on. Leviticus chapter 17, we find this. I won't read the whole text, but in Leviticus 17, he says, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Same language. 
I've given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for your life. No person among you shall eat the blood. At the end, he says again, whoever eats the blood is to be cut off. I was serious about that. John MacArthur's helpful here. He just writes this, raw blood was not to be consumed as food. It symbolized or it, it symbolically represented life. To shed blood symbolically represented death. The blood of animals representing their life was not to be eaten. It was in fact the blood that God designed to be a covering for sin. That's what he said in Leviticus 17. And I think no wonder were the Jews offended by Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And we hear that as symbolic language. We go, okay, I get it. You're the bread and we're to eat the bread. But then he goes on, verse 53, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood a true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. You keep reading that text and it says this. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, verse 59. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? If you wonder if they really struggle with this, just keep reading the text because in verse 66 it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The talk of eating flesh and drinking blood was offensive to them for they had been ingrained in this that was rooted in Genesis and repeated in Leviticus and continued through the scriptural times and now Jesus is using language like eat my flesh and drink my blood. But it's clear that they had missed His meaning. He was not defying the law, but He was employing a simple spiritual analogy. That they missed. You see, he was simply arguing that just as eating and drinking physical food and water are necessary to maintain physical life, so also is the wholehearted belief in, we might even use the language of consumption of his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross necessary for eternal life. He's saying you have to take it all. You don't pick and choose. Take all of me. Again, MacArthur's helpful here. He just explains it this way. The eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood metaphorically symbolize the need for accepting Jesus' cross work completely. You see, it's important for us to remember, friends, that even as we study Genesis, that much like God gave the skins of animals to serve as a covering for nakedness, back in chapter 4, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 21, He also gave the blood of animals to serve as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. It's fascinating. Skins of animals, Genesis chapter 3, covering. Blood of animals, Leviticus chapter 17, covering. We find this repetition. He told his people not to eat the blood. But in light of all that's here, friends, I want you to follow this for just a moment before we move on. Though it was, wasn't completely so, we might want to think of the flood as kind of a reboot of sorts. Uh, you have a problem with your, your computer, your internet, your service people. What's the first thing they tell you? 
Have you restarted it, right? Reboot. Let's start there. And it wasn't completely this, but in a sense it was like this. There was a, there was a reboot happening in the created order at the flood. In other words, following the flood, God wiped the slate clean and then recommissioned Noah and his family with the very same mandate he had given to Adam and Eve in the beginning. He expands on it. He gives them more to eat. We're thankful for that. But he repeats the command. And all of this pointed forward to, in types and shadows, that Lord Je- the Lord Jesus, who is the only sovereign, would be the only Savior of men because he takes up the same language about himself. I believe that that's the significance here of the repeated command. So we said here we have a striking contrast. We have a repeated command. The third one I'm going to touch on and keep moving. What do we have? A sobering corrective. Just look at the language with me at verses 5 and 6 of our text because we're going to come back here, Lord willing. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So much I want to stop right here and say, we're not going to do it this morning. I'm going to resist that urge today. But I am planning to come back next Sunday and preach an entire sermon rooted in these two verses. The Imago Dei, the image of God. And what is its implication and significance for the way we think and interact in life. What does it mean for us when we think about things like murder and war, abortion, cultural norms of our day, even the treatment of another, right down to questions of things like human trafficking, pornography, the like. Your beliefs and your actions and mine had better be rooted in something. We're about to vote. Some of us already have. This should factor in the way we think about and operate within our culture. And I want to come back to it next Sunday. Significant. Can't miss it. For today, though, I just want to mention it. We're coming back to it. And I want to move on. So we said we have a striking contrast. We have a repeated command. We have a sober and corrective. I want to end here this morning. And we're not going to have long for this. But I want you to consider a reminder of the covenant. Look again at the language we find at the end of our text as God takes up this sign. He says in verse 8, And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, verse 12, This is the sign or we might say symbol of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And we're going to look at some of these verses as we consider what is coming next. Friends, according to the text, God did not just make this covenant promise to Noah. 
It's often referred to as the Noahic covenant or the, 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 the uh, covenant with Noah, but it wasn't just made to Noah alone. In fact, the text tells us that God made this to Noah, to his children, to every living creature alive, both then and throughout all future generations. Verses, uh, verses 9 and 10 and then verse 12 are very plain about this. Don't miss that specific language in verse 11 where we found this. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. This is what he's promising. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God gave not only the promise, but He gave a symbol or a sign of the covenant that would serve as a perpetual reminder of His promise through all future generations. Verses 12 and 13 tell us this. That symbol is the rainbow. Let me say that again. That symbol is the rainbow. There are several things worth noting here. We need to make sure that we see. First of all, that God is sovereign over this. We know He's sovereign over everything, but God states His sovereignty over this. Did you notice that? Let's find in verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. Rainbows don't happen by accident, friends. God puts them there. When I bring the clouds and you see the rainbow. Notice as well that people are to look up and be served by the rainbow. We see that in verse 13. What does it say? I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You're going to look up. You're going to see that sign. Again, I put the bow there. You're going to see it. And God will look down, the text tells us, and he uses this word again. Remember. Look at verse 15. What does he say there? I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I'm going to see that rainbow and I'm going to remember. Let's not forget, we said it earlier. If we're honest, we tend to think that the opposite of remember is to forget. That's not the case with God. The omniscient, all-knowing God never forgets anything. What we studied last time is the fact that the issue here is a matter of God following through on a promise. That's what's going on. It's covenant language. So my friends, could I just say this to you as we bring this to a close? This, this was not just a happy accident on the second day our family was in Hawaii earlier this summer. We walked out the back of the place where we were staying, looking down through the valley to right there in in Honolulu. That wasn't an accident. It's not just what we might call the convergence of happenstance. It's not just the chance refraction of light rays through water particles in the atmosphere. That's what a science will tell you. That's all it is. Light through water. That's it. No. That is not what our God says. Friends, this was the sovereign gift of of a sovereign God reminding me and every living soul that saw it that He still reigns. That He still remembers. And that He is still keeping His promise. We looked up at it 
But according to the word, he looked down on it, and we all remembered. This morning, we've flown quickly through this, I know. A lot of material, a lot of verses. Drawn out a few key thoughts along the way. That was intentional. Next week, we want to return, maybe the week after, to more of the thoughts that are in these passages. For today, though, I, I simply want to close this time in the Word by challenging each of us to leave here encouraged. Friends, I want you to leave encouraged that we serve the Sovereign One who still reigns, who still remembers and who is still keeping every word of every promise he has ever made. There have been some tough things in recent days. You've had tough things. We've had tough things. To be honest with you, I wrote to a friend not long ago because of a situation I'm aware of and working on affects some people away from here. And I said, you know, I know, I know God's sovereign. I know, I know He's sovereign. But it really is hard when it feels like the unrighteous are winning. I need to remember as to you that we serve the sovereign one he still reigns he still remembers he still keeps every word of every promise he's ever made and today I need to walk in that truth and tomorrow I need to get up and walk in that truth this week, you need to rise and walk in that truth, my friends. If we're not careful, we read this story and we say, that's nice, now on to bigger things. There aren't bigger things. There aren't bigger things. I've got plans and I've got hopes and I've got dreams and I've got problems. They feel so big. There aren't bigger things than Him. My question for me and my question for you. Do we know him and do we trust him? I want you to leave encouraged that you can trust him. And so can I. And to that end, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the truth. We ask that you would take us from here walking in it. And would you get the glory as we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray.